Thanks for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. Our hope is that it helps you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Hello and welcome back to Galatians. Today we are jumping into chapter 4. But just as a reminder of where we've been, Paul is upset. He's upset with the churches in Galatia that it seems as though they have abandoned a gospel by faith for a gospel of good works. And he's trying to explain to them that this is a dangerous concept. It seems as though Jews are going to Gentiles and telling them that they have to obey all of these laws and family rules if they want to be considered a part of the covenant community, the church. And Paul is saying, no, this is exactly the opposite of what Christ has done on the cross and through his resurrection and the faith that he invites us to have in him, how that begins to change things. In fact, Paul uses his authority to do this, but he also uses his story, his testimony. Like he reminds them, don't you remember who I was? I was a sinner. I I, I was a rule follower. I was a passionate, zealous man about the law and knowledgeable about all these things. I was a persecutor of Christians. But the truth is I came to understand I was a sinner saved by grace when Jesus showed up and changed my life forever. And he's trying to help them see this. He's saying, are you saying that, that God's calling on my life was, was meaningless? Are you saying that, that my conversion, my transformation was meaningless? And what he's asking, more importantly than all this, is was the cross meaningless? Obviously, the answer to that question shouldn't be yes. <laughs> the, the, the answer is absolutely not. The cross changes everything. And Paul won't have any of what they are doing. And so he's trying to help them see that of all the things the law couldn't do, Like the law showed us what was good, but it couldn't make us good. The law showed us when justice was needed, but it couldn't make us just. Only one thing could, faith in Christ. And when we had faith in Christ, it radically changed everything. It changed our identity, our allegiance, our understanding of all that we were, of all that we were becoming. It located us in Christ. And those things that once separated us of Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free, have been completely demolished in order that we may find our identity, our worth, our value, the truth of who we are and who we're becoming in Christ. And this is in part where Paul picks up today in chapter 4. So let's listen to what it is he has to say as he starts to unpack more of his explanation. He says this, What I am saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. See, Paul is using an analogy here. And the point of what he's saying is it's similar to a son who has this future fortune or blessing that awaits him when he gets to a certain age or when he gets to a certain event. And he's just waiting for that time to come. But in fact, he's actually a lot more like a servant in this case. Like he's being told what to do, what to be, who to become by this guardian, this trustee that's helping him along until that time does finally come. And Paul's trying to make the point that this is similar to what the law did. 
Like the law was our trustee, it was our guardian, and Paul says that we're actually waiting for that time to come as well, for the law to be fulfilled, for Christ's redemption to take place. But he makes a very distinct point here that I don't want you to miss. He's saying we're not waiting as children, we're waiting as slaves. We've already broken the law. We've already become servants, enslaved to sin, and so we're actually, we're orphans. We're alienated from each other, and we are estranged from our God. But it was Jesus. When Jesus comes, we see that he was the true son who obeyed the law perfectly. And when the time came, he inherited everything, all of that fortune and blessing and goodness, all the things that we most longed for. And so it is in Jesus that we, as orphans, become adopted into God's family. We become the heirs of God, not along with Christ, but in Christ. His blessing, his inheritance, we share it with him as if we are the son. I mean, this changes literally everything about who we are as we regain our family. Now, I have three kids under five right now, and bedtimes are a wrestling match. But they are fun, right? I mean, there's always something that they end up coming out and telling us that they need, whether they need water or they need food or they just need some comfort or whatever the case may be. But there are some other times when they like wake up in the middle of the night and you know, you'll just be laying there sleeping. No matter what, they'll come and I don't know if your body just tells you that there's somebody by, but then you end up waking up, your eyes open and there's just a freaky little child standing there and they see that you're awake and they start asking you questions and you start to get recalibrated with what is going on. But the truth is they end up telling you, you no, know, they need water, they need food, they need something. Most of the time, they just need you. And even though it's in the middle of the night, even though they have interrupted your sacred sleep, You begin to give them what they need in order to help them have peace or rest, whether it's because they're afraid or because they need thirst, their thirst quenched, whatever the case may be. And what Paul is telling us is that when the Spirit comes in and it renovates and it changes us and it claims us in light of our faith, that we can actually come to God and say, Abba, Father, that we have that kind of access, that no matter the time or the day or the moment, we can come before our God, not as strangers, but as children, speaking to him as he is our God and Father. And we can come to him and make these requests of him. It's a really a stunning picture, and it's a beautiful one, that we would see God as truly the head of our family and the leader. And Paul continues on in verse 5. He says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. See, Paul says that when you didn't know God, you were like slaves. Like, now you do. But more importantly, more precisely, it's not that you just know God, but you are known by Him. You see, our whole life sometimes is built around trying to get people to notice us, trying to be understood or accepted. And that's really what the Jews have tried to do their entire existence, is to cross off the check marks to hopefully please a God and therefore be saved by him. And what Paul is saying is, no, 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 this isn't a birthday party that you attended and you gave the kid the best gift and so he likes you. That's not what happened. You attended a birthday party and the kid gave you a gift because he acknowledged you, because you were known by him. This is what grace does. This is what God establishes. He steps in. He he intervenes in a way that is stunning and amazing and magnificent. And Paul says, why would you go back to slavery? 
slavery again? Why would you go back to that? Why would you reestablish these religious feast days and these, these check marks once more, trying to earn a favor of the favors of God, even though he's already given you the best gift you could ever have? And Paul is trying to help them see with, with great care and patience and seriousness and compassion the subject of which he's trying to address. But listen to what he says in verse 12. He says, I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing of me now? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Man, Paul is just desperate that they would see his heart in his, this letter, not just a fist. He's not trying to hurt them. He's trying to help them. He's trying to help them see how, how beautiful the gospel is and how harmful it can be when it's, when it's disrupted by falsehood. And he was a passionate Jew, obeying the law, you know, persecuting Christians until God saved him. But in addition to this, he gave up his time and his resources and his energy to invest in these people. He's been trying to help them see so clearly what it is God's been doing. In fact, we see in Acts 16, and we think that this might be what, what Paul's referring to here, when the Spirit um, actually it, it, uh, it, it hinders Paul from going to a certain place, and this is why Paul ends up going to Galatia, we find out. And we think that maybe there's this in part was maybe this illness that Paul's referring to here. We're not exactly sure. But the point is that it was the spirit that ends up bringing him here. It was this illness that ended up keeping him here. And now his love, his relationship with him has grown and, and it's really bloomed. And, and now he's like, man, this is, this is hard for me to see this because it's vulnerable. It's transparent. It's, it's risky. And that's what love relationships do, man. There's always this risk of like, what if I'm not understood or what if it's not being returned or what, what if this relationship's broken or compromised because they misunderstand where I'm coming from? And Paul's saying, can you just hear my sincerity, my intentionality, my authenticity? This is what I'm trying to offer to you, to remind you of. And the point is that he's kind of, he's starting to question whether, whether the people who even came to them with this false gospel had any of that to begin with. Listen to what he says. Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always, not just when I am with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone, because I am perplexed about you. Man, you can just hear Paul's emotions pouring from the pages. He says, you know my love for you. You have seen it, my sincerity. I'm just asking that you assess that same, those same characteristics of those who have been telling you this, this false gospel. Like, does it seem really that they care for you like I do? Does it seem as though they're pouring themselves out like I am? Does it seem as though they're doing everything, even at the cost of their own life, that you may understand the truth of what God has done? And it's, it's crazy because Paul, I mean, Paul is actually, he's talking to himself, referring to himself almost as a mother right now. And he uses this illustration of childbirth. And I'll tell you what, after having three kids, I can tell you this, like, thank God for epidurals. My wife didn't experience that much pain. And I don't know if you're in that same situation, but sometimes this analogy can actually be lost on us because of these, these amazing blessings of technology and, and medication. But what I don't want you to miss is like many, many women died during childbirth. 
And in fact, only 40% of children survived it. And you know what Paul's saying? He's saying, I feel like I'm in childbirth. Not only do I fear for my own life, but man, I fear for yours. Because in those moments, you don't even know if the child's going to make it. And you're in all this pain, this agony, just trying to get this child out and healthy and alive. And you don't know whether it will actually come to fruition until that little breathing soul is placed in your arms and you see it for the first time. And then all the pain, all the toil, all the agony, it becomes a memory. It becomes all worth it to see this little infant in your arms once more. And Paul's saying, that's where I am with you again. But my hope is that I can see you again, your living, breathing souls, and see Christ in you. And Paul continues on. He says, Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a divine promise. These things are being taken figuratively. The women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Again, we see Paul doing some interpretive work of the Old Testament. And he talks about the the promise through Abraham and the heir that was going to be born from him. You probably know about the story. God comes to Abraham and he says he's going to make a great nation, but specifically he's going to do it through the offspring that he's going to produce through Sarah, who has been barren up until this point. And what happens is Sarah and Abraham become impatient. And don't we all? Like God's timing always seems to be a little bit longer than ours. And so they decide they're going to take matters into their own hands. And what happens is Sarah tells Abraham to sleep with their servant, Hagar. And this ends up producing the son, and they name him Ishmael. Now, this arrangement doesn't last too long because Sarah actually becomes jealous of Hagar, and then Abraham ends up sending her away. But Paul is interpreting the story for us. He says, Hagar and Ishmael are of the flesh because it wasn't in alignment with the promises of God. Like, this is when Abraham and Sarah try to take things into their own hands and do it on their own and and, and force the promise of God, even though that's not what God intended. But what actually happens is then when Sarah had her son Isaac, this birth was according to the promise because it wasn't what Abraham and Sarah and Hagar did on their own. It was what God did through Sarah. It was what God did through Sarah and Abraham. This was the heir according to the promise. And so one woman represents the covenant that was made on on Mount Sinai with Moses when he received the law, but the other son, the other son represents the covenant with Abraham. And Paul continues on his interpretation. He says, now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Shout for joy and cry aloud, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. But what does Scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. You see, Paul identifies here two competing ideas. There's faith and law. There's two competing women in in Sarah and Hagar. 
There's two competing covenants in law and promise, and there's two competing cities, but they're both named Jerusalem. Now, remember, a city is just is this giant area, this urban area where lots of people live, lots of people go to, they travel through it. It's a hub for really social interaction and cultural and values to be seen throughout everything. In fact, you can see these cultures, the values, by the artifacts and the monuments that each city contains. So if you go into New York, you're going to see skyscrapers, you're going to see old buildings, and that's because they have values of, of business and finance and history. Now, if you go to Hollywood, it's gonna be a little bit different. You're going to see performance and art as their values, as you see studios and stars and all these different things. And the whole point is that in Jerusalem, you see these same sorts of artifacts of culture and value. You go into Jerusalem and you see the temple and you see Jews dressed in these different garments that are representative of the rabbis or the teachings that they follow. And you begin to see that these garments that they, they show, they showcase these different ideas of how they believe that God wants them to act and be and become. And you'll see the trades and the sacrifices where you can purchase animals and make sacrifices. These are the values. This is the law. This is the place for upholding all these things in order to obtain salvation. But in the new Jerusalem, It's different. You see, in the new Jerusalem, there's a temple, but it's not made with human hands. But the presence of God dwells there. It makes up the people of God. And the Spirit enters our life, and we become the temple where God dwells. And there's no places to purchase sacrifices anymore because there was one sacrifice that was made once for all. And the garments that we wear, man, they don't look different. They're all the same, and it's all Christ's garment, and it clothes us all equally in a way that redefines who we are. It satisfies God. It changes us. And Paul quotes here Isaiah 54, reminding his readers the prophetic vision that Isaiah made, that although it may appear as though Israel is barren and her offspring stunted, God will always be faithful to his promise. He will see it through. And Paul says this is exactly what God is doing in his church. You see, the church may endure persecution, and even at times by the child of law, but it is the slave woman who will be sent away, and the child of promise will be the one who enjoys the blessings of God. Paul concludes his point in verse 31. He says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. See, Paul's whole point is that those who have experienced Christ would not plunge themselves back into a life of slavery. He has set us free and we are no longer under the requirements of the law. The law doesn't judge if we are worthy or unworthy any longer because it has already happened through Christ's death and resurrection. And so if the law doesn't matter, then the questions start to arise. Like, why do we need it at all? How are we being judged? Why should we seek holiness? Why should we strive for it? Does it even matter? And these are the questions that Paul is going to begin to answer in Galatians chapter 5 when we begin to dive in next time. So we'll see you then. Thanks again for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. We hope that this teaching is helping you discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. If you're interested in learning more about Christ Church, visit us online at cco.church.